0: Welcome to Studio Two. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron.
1: And I'm Cherry Gregg. Good afternoon, Avi. We have a lot to talk about today. Uh, at the top of the show, we'll be talking about abortion. Uh, Apparently, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court has opened the door, potentially, to make abortion a fundamental right in Pennsylvania. There's a long way to go to get there. Long way to go. But we have one of the lawyers that represents the winning side of this case, David Cohen, a law professor at Drexel University. He's our newsmaker today. We'll hear from him. Mm -hmm. And the big part of our show is about a play at the Arden Theater you saw this weekend. It's called Lady Sitting. Yeah, and I really enjoyed it. And, it,
0: well, enjoy might be the wrong It's an intense play, mm-hmm. um, but it's really thought-provoking. And the performance um, from the actress that we're going to speak to, Trezana Beverly, is phenomenal. Wow. So we'll talk with her and the, the writer of the play, Loreen Carey, who's lots of people in Philly, I think, know Lorreen Carey's work. Uh, she's been doing great stuff for a long time.
1: And we get to talk about the best, the 50 best restaurants, according to Philadelphia Magazine, and WHYY's own Kaylani Palmisano, who will be here today to tee that up. I realize I haven't been eating well. I have not been to a lot of these restaurants. So get I have a lot it. to do. So get we'll talk it. about that. If you have a favorite restaurant or you have a comment about, Any part of our show, you can email us or call us. Our email is studio2 at WHYY.org. Our number is 888-477-9499.
0: First, Cherry, however, Mm -hmm. we want to uh, break the format a little bit here and get to some breaking news as part of an evolving story. On Friday night, Philadelphia police shot and killed 28-year-old Alexander Spencer inside a North Philadelphia store after a struggle that left one officer wounded. About an hour ago, amid rising tensions in the community, officials held a press conference releasing video Mm -hmm. of this encounter. WHYY's Tom McDonald was there, reviewed the video, and now joins us on the line. Uh, Tom, welcome back to Studio 2.
2: Good afternoon.
1: So, Tom, explain the facts of this incident and what the video shows.
2: Well, it starts out, police were going to this tavern, as it was called, more of a stop-and-go for people who understand what we're talking about. They were looking for a suspect in another incident. So they were going through the place, looking at people, and at the time, the suspect was not there, but they hadn't gone all the way through. They got to the back and were asking the one person that was involved to show underneath his jacket, that created a scuffle. And that scuffle ended in an officer being shot, and then the person who drew his gun being shot by the second officer who was in the tavern at the time.
0: Does the video, Tom, clarify anything? Does it does it tell us something we didn't already know? I mean, this is just... I know we're getting your first reaction
2: here, um, but can you give us a sense? Well, it, it shows an interesting number of angles so it was there was a video released to social media that was long shot and you really couldn't see what was going on this is a multiple camera shooting showing that the officers guns were in their holsters mm. at the time initially and then it came to the point where you heard a shot and then a reply shot that apparently came from the second officer. At least it looks that way now. At this point, there's going to have to be a lot of investigating, but police and the DA worked together to get this out because they didn't want tensions to rise in the neighborhood.
1: Yeah, and I understand that another man was at the scene, fled, uh, and there had been discussion about that over the weekend. What is the status of that part?
2: Well, that is really, really um, shown in this video. The video that was on social media did not show Alexander Spencer's gun fly across the room. And then a third person, Jose Quinones Mendez, walk in, put his foot on the gun, reach down, pick up the gun and put it in his pocket and leave. Hmm. The social media video could have been Mendez's video. Interesting.
0: Interesting. Um, So what's next now, Tom?
2: The DA's office, the police, are all doing investigations, and we will see those investigations blossom. A lot of science has to be done, and we probably won't have any results on this for several months.
0: Thank you so much. That's Tom McDonald uh, of WHYY. You know him well. He was giving us uh, the latest from this incident involving uh, police Mm -hmm. and a uh, 28-year-old in a North Philadelphia store. Uh, As Tom mentioned, there had been this social media video that had been out there. Now we have video from inside the store, multiple angles. Uh, Tom, thanks again for joining us.
1: All right. So now we're going to jump right into our roundup. And uh, the big story here is about Funding. Funding. Well, so next
0: week, Mm -hmm. a week from today, Governor Josh Shapiro of Pennsylvania is slated to give his budget address. Mm -hmm. And the way these things go is that when you approach the budget address, you start hearing details about what a governor, what what they Mm -hmm. might do or might not do. Um, So two big things that have already come out. Um, from what we think Governor Josh Shapiro wants to do over the next year in Pennsylvania. One involves public transit, and mm-hmm. we've talked about this before. Yep. There is a fiscal cliff coming yep. for SEPTA mm-hmm. and other regional transit providers because they got a lot of money from the federal government during the pandemic. And it's going pandemic. away. It's yeah. going away, and ridership is still mm-hmm. down. So Shapiro wants to increase the state's funding for uh, SEPTA and other transit providers by about $282 million this next year. We'll see if he can get that done. Shapiro also, and mm-hmm. I think this one's really interesting and going under the radar, Cherry. He talked about kind of totally reformatting mm-hmm. higher education in the state of Pennsylvania. Inter-
1: it was quite interesting, yeah.
0: So basically what he's laying out is that the state schools, which are called the Pashi schools, Pennsylvania mm-hmm. State System of Higher Education, they would get combined in a single governmental entity with all 15 of the state's community colleges. The campuses would still all be separate, but there would be one structure, one state-governed structure that would oversee all of them. And this is what you often see, mergers and consolidations and things like that, when systems are really struggling. And that is the case for community colleges and state colleges here in Pennsylvania. Enrollment is way down.
1: Yeah, and one of the things that I found interesting is that the state funding would be based on this formula that is partially um, focused on institutional performance. So it, you have an incentive to do better yep. as a as an institution. Also, I should note that the plan would not apply to for it's, the four state-related institutions like Penn State, Pitt, or Lincoln University or Temple yep. University. But, I mean, this is an issue that uh, needs to be discussed because the current state uh, of the funding doesn't seem to be working. And so, you know... Josh Shapiro, our governor, is trying to come up with a solution. There are so
0: many angles to this. One of them is that state funding for for mm-hmm. public funded institutions in Pennsylvania is proportionally lower than it is elsewhere, yeah. and that's contributing to some of the problems that they're having. But there's also just a demographic cliff here. We talked about a fiscal cliff earlier. This is a demographic cliff. There just aren't enough high school graduates in a yeah. place like Pennsylvania, which is not a big growing state like Arizona mm-hmm. or Colorado mm-hmm. or Texas or Florida or some Sunbelt state. There just aren't enough people who traditionally would go to college. So you, you have, have to reformat yeah. what you're doing to maybe appeal to you know second career folks or, or yeah. something
1: to get enrollment back up. And in college, even state college, is expensive. And so I should mention that the plan also includes tuition reduction for low- to middle-income students, where you would pay $1,000 per semester per semester instead of seven thousand plus a semester. Right. So, they would try to cap
0: yeah. the tuition. Yes. So
1: that would get another, you know, group of students who may avoid um maybe. You but know, you have to pay for that, right? So you're you have to right plug now. that
0: that gap somehow. So we'll see how they do it. But it's really, really interesting and I just think folks should pay attention to this. Yeah.
1: That's my plug. And keeping with the theme of education, sure. um, Philly school superintendent Watlington gave his first ever State of the Schools speech today. Lots of pomp and circumstance. I know you and I both caught a bit of it. And it seems to me it's an opportunity for them to talk about what the school district is doing. Um, And there was a video hailing all the achievements. There was a musical performance. It was literally like a school uh, assembly. Um, But Watlington said the public deserves to get a clear, honest evaluation of how the system is doing. And he hopes to do uh, this type of evaluation and speech every single January. Hmm. Uh, He talked about a shakeup in algebra and biology instruction. Um, talk about the future as the federal COVID-19 relief funds dry up. But, you know, I mean, I think this is sort of a PR opportunity for the school district. The mayor was there. Folks wanted to make sure that they were saying, hey, the city is focused on education.
0: Well, we should clarify. I think you kind of mentioned it. But if you're thinking, Wait, State of the Schools address? I never heard of that before. It's because it's never happened before. It's (laughs) It's the the first ever. They have created their own new soapbox Mm -hmm. to stand on and talk about the schools, which is probably smart. Um, As you mentioned, the school system, like SEPTA, Mm -hmm. got a lot of COVID-19 relief funds, when that goes away, there are going to be some serious, serious mm-hmm. conversations about how to fund the school district moving forward.
1: And there's the newt state case where there is this pot of money, thanks there, to yeah, there is, but but, well, but no one isn't. knows. But there isn't a pot but of money. That's the know. problem. People don't know what's going to happen there. Yeah, so. You said
0: so like, theoretically, right? Mm-hmm. The the you're talking about the lawsuit mm-hmm. uh, that Philadelphia other other school districts were involved in to drive more money to lower-income school districts. Um, yes, they won that case, but there's been no resolution. There's it's still been,
1: up in the air. But, but So there is no pot yeah. of
0: money. That's the problem. And they need the money now. And so yeah. one thing that you can do when you need money is to say, hey, look at us. We're going to hold a big event, and we're going to give a big speech, and we're going to be out in front and asking mm-hmm. and make sure people know what our needs are. And I think that's kind of what you have here with the and state of the schools. And we can
1: expect this every single January. State of the schools. Here I guess in so. Philadelphia, okay. we shall see what happens.
0: Uh, let's go back to Harrisburg now. Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled Monday that a lower court must review a case challenging a state law that limits Medicaid funding for abortions in Pennsylvania. A coalition of abortion providers bought the case. Abortion rights advocates see this as a big victory that could create the pathway to a guaranteed right to abortion under the Pennsylvania Constitution.
1: Drexel University Law Professor David Cohen was one of the lawyers on the team representing their providers and joins us now. David, welcome to Studio 2.
0: Thanks for having me. All right, so uh, let's get some basics here, uh, David. This is a ruling that says a Pennsylvania law that limited Medicaid payments for abortion uh, may violate the state's constitution, but they didn't even say that it did violate the state's constitution. So what happens next here?
3: So the state Supreme Court said that it likely violates the state's Equal Rights Amendment. We have an ERA, not like the U.S. Constitution that doesn't have one. In 1985, the state Supreme Court said the ERA has nothing to do with abortion. Um, We successfully overturned that case yesterday. The court now said the ERA does um, have something to do with abortion and that abortion restrictions like the one here is a form of sex discrimination. We just now have to go back to the lower courts to prove whether this type of sex discrimination is allowed or not. Yeah, can
0: you just clarify um, for folks the the ERA, it doesn't say the word abortion. So So why is your argument that it does infer the right to an abortion in Pennsylvania. Like, what is it and why would it be connected to abortion procedures?
3: So the argument under the ERA is that it's discriminatory, that the, that the restriction on Medicaid funding discriminates between men and women because all men's reproductive health care is covered under Medicaid, but all women's reproductive health care is not because abortion is carved out. And so that argument was rejected in 1985, but accepted yesterday by this Supreme Court. Um, and now not all sex discrimination is not allowed. Some of it can be allowed. So we just have to prove that this is a kind of sex discrimination that's not allowed under the ERA.
1: And David, you, the ruling of this case does not clearly make abortion a fundamental right, but you say it opens the door. Explain in layman's terms how this uh, how this opens that door. And I know there's a difference in how courts look at sex discrimination that could be helpful here.
3: Yeah, so we had two claims, one that it's sex discrimination, and the second claim was that this violates a fundamental right to abortion under the Pennsylvania Constitution. On that second claim, we got two justices who agreed that there's a fundamental right. We needed three because there were five justices, a majority is three, and we didn't get that third. We did get a third who said maybe, but it's just not the right time to address that. So that's opening the door. We have a very strong opinion from Justice Donahue saying there's a fundamental right to abortion, and we just need to get a, a majority to agree to that. And we're very close, um, but not yet, not there yet. So some other day, we hope to get there.
1: And quick follow up about the justices. I mean, this decision was three to two, um, and um, the the full court is seven justices. Two were not a part of the court uh, when this appeal went through. How could the the new makeup of the court with the seven justices impact a future decision?
3: Uh, it's a really good question. And so when we if if we have a case, this case or another case like it that goes back before the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, we don't know if all seven will participate. Justice Robson recused himself. He was part of the court, but said, I will not participate in this case. We don't know why. So we don't know if he'll participate in future abortion cases or not. Justice McCaffrey was just elected in November, two months ago. Presumably, he would be a part of any court hearing future cases. Um, And he certainly campaigned saying there was a right to abortion, so we would hope he would agree with us. But certainly, um, that's left to be decided. David, can you clarify for me how this issue might
0: be adjudicated in the future? Like, Would it be this case that would then make its way back up to the PA Supreme Court, and they could make this broader ruling that you're talking about based on the facts in this case? Or would there need to be some other separate challenge that made its way through the courts?
3: Either one of those is possible. We don't know what the future holds with this case, whether it will be resolved in the trial court and not appealed, um, or if it will be appealed. But there could be future cases raising similar issues. So that is a, you know, I think both of the options you just mentioned are possibilities. And we also don't know the timeline. Will it happen within the next year or two or will this be 10 years down the line? Uh, we certainly don't know. But the the Pennsylvania Supreme Court left the door open with some very encouraging signs.
1: Yeah. And so I got to ask you just to be clear, abortion is still legal in Pennsylvania until 23 weeks. And I just want you to talk about this law doesn't change anything for anyone who is currently seeking uh, abortion services.
3: Right. Abortion in Pennsylvania is still legal up to the start of the 24th week, um, or up to 24 weeks, and it's heavily restricted. None of that changes. So the Medicaid restriction that we challenged has not changed yet. Uh, We hope it'll change when we ultimately win this case, but all of the restrictions in place two days ago in Pennsylvania are still in place today, um, subject to future litigation.
0: Now, let's get into a hypothetical here, David. If at some point down the line, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court says that there is a fundamental right to abortion enshrined in the Constitution of the state, what then happens? Does that mean the 23 week ban, uh, the 23 week threshold goes away? Like what what practically could follow from such a decision in the future?
3: Um. So a lot of possibilities. So one, it would mean that Pennsylvania is not at risk of losing the just basic legality of abortion no matter what the legislative changes might be so basically the status quo at least the status quo would remain with respect to legality of abortion it may also mean that some of the restrictions in place whether it's the fact that minors have to get the permission of their parents or there's biased counseling that providers have to give ahead of time um, there could be other restrictions down the line that might be at risk of being found unconstitutional if there is a right to abortion, but that's all yet to be determined. Of course, you know,
1: David, the GOP has pushed back. They are calling this ruling an activist ruling, given the makeup of the court. I said they argue that it oversteps lawmakers' authority. You representing the winning side in this case, uh, what do you have to say in response to that argument that you know this this is This middle ground, you know, allowing abortion to the beginning of the 24th week, um, but not allowing state funding to go for that was sort of like a bipartisan compromise. What is your response to that?
3: Um, The state constitution has an equal rights amendment, and it has to mean something. And it has to mean that the state cannot treat men and women differently with respect to medical benefits and any other benefit, too. Um, The state doesn't have to fund. We never said in our uh, briefing and our argument that the state has to fund it. Just if it's going to fund, it has to be non-discriminatory in how it does. And so the state has elected to fund Medicaid and reproductive health care, but it doesn't do it equally. And so the requirement in the state constitution can't be ignored, that there has to be sex equality.
0: As we wrap up, David, did this decision and specifically the wording in the opinions uh, did it surprise you
3: um it certainly surprised me how long it was it's almost 400 mm-hmm. pages long so um that was a big surprise it also took 15 months but um and that's a surprise too but you know we were we were optimistic um given the makeup of the Pennsylvania supreme court and what we believed was the strength of our arguments we were optimistic um, did we um, know exactly that we were gonna, going to win in this way? No, so we were very happy yesterday mm-hmm. and happy going forward. Um, but yeah, so it was you know surprising that way.
0: Interesting. That's David Cohen, professor of law at Drexel University's Klein School of Law, helped argue this potentially landmark reproductive rights case that came down yesterday. David, thanks for joining us on Studio Two.
3: Thanks for having me today.
1: And coming up next, playwright and author Lorreen Carey and Tony Award-winning actor Trezana Beverly are here to talk about their collaboration on Lady Sitting, now showing at the Arden Theatre. Looking forward to this discussion. We'll be right back.
3: Stick with us.
4: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is
0: Studio 2. Welcome back. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi wolfman And this weekend, I had the pleasure of seeing a great new play at the Arden Theater called Lady Sitting, this was uh, adapted by local author and playwright Lorene Carey from her 2019 memoir about the
1: year she cared for her 101-year-old grandmother. lady Sitting is about aging and caregiving, forgiveness and love. It also looks back on five generations of an African-American family from Reconstruction to President Obama's election. Tony Award-winning actor Trezana Beverly plays Lorene's nana, Beverly was the first black woman to win a Tony in the featured actress category back in 1977 for her role and for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. Trezana and Lorraine join us now. Welcome both of you to Studio Two. Thank you. Thank you. And if you have
0: questions for Lorreen or Trezana, you can, of course, call or email us. The number is 888 477 9499. The email address is studio2 at org.
1: So, Lorraine, congratulations on your new play. Um, Thank you. Very exciting. So, I want you to sort of lay out the storyline for us and just tell us exactly what lady sitting is.
4: Lady sitting is the word we came up with uh, when my grandmother's used to complain about needing to and somebody to babysit her and so we came up with the word "lady it it was just it was sort of a code word so that we all understood that yes she did need help but that but that we needed to give her another level of of dignity uh and respect for the kind of care she needed And,
0: Lorraine, Um, for folks who haven't seen the play, explain kind of the plot, what happens over the course of the play.
4: The the play goes from my grandmother's being let out of hospital and put onto hospice um, and sent to our house, where doctors told us that they expected her to live six weeks, maybe even as long as a few months. Um, She got better. She got off hospice. Uh, She lived with us for a little bit more than a year and a half, Uh, and it's about that caretaking year and a half, about her getting better, Um, and then her decline, it's how the family changed, and it was her indomitable will, her will to keep living, Uh, and in fact, a a fair amount of fear um, of, of dying.
0: Trizana, you play Nana. Yes, I do. Uh, You play it wonderfully. Thank you. What did you want to know about the real life, Nana, um, as you created this role? Like, what were your conversations with Lorene like?
5: Well, I think those moments where she is by herself, where she is alone, the visions that she's having, those inner thoughts, um, the fears that she has, um, and the control the incredible control that this lady had you know and even 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 over death yeah because in the play you know she goes toe to toe
0: with death yeah she's like bargaining with this angel okay. of death angel of life character exactly. um, which is also played brilliantly and um though it's an interesting kind of twist right because it's a very real play but then you have just bolts of supernatural kind of coursing through it. How, how did you kind of reckon with that as an actor?
5: Well, I have to tell you, I mean, those moments are very abstract, and uh, for an actor, that's a lot of fun. <laughs> that's a lot of fun because you have, you have great liberty with that, you know, and uh, with our director um, and the music and the movement, I think that those moments become very, very profound in the play.
1: And Lorraine, I have to ask you, curating your real life into a memoir or a slice of life is one thing, but cutting it down to a stage performance is another thing. How was that process? And what was it like sort of seeing, you know, Trezana playing your Nana and seeing another actor play yourself? Oh, oh, Cherry, I was a fool. I
4: was a fool. (laughs) Who told me I could do this? Um, I must say, so, so I've written two memoirs,
5: mm-hmm. one about
4: going to boarding school um, as a scholarship kid in the early days of integration and co-education at boarding schools. And right before that book came out, I remember saying to myself, what have you done? You know, it's it's not like just going out with no clothes on. It's like going out with no skin. Mm. This is you fool. You're like, you were just writing this by yourself and everything was fine, but other people are going to read this. Well, What the hell were you thinking? What were you thinking? Um, so that was when I was 30. I have not had that feeling again. I didn't have it when I wrote Lady Sitting as a memoir. But when I saw real people doing, when I heard this name that my grandmother and I share uh, being said, I thought, I don't, I It's very, I can't stand it, really. It's very hard. So it took me a lot of drafts. But then, then, then it was wonderful because then I realized, great, these are brilliant, creative people. I have written words. I have changed us into characters. They interpret the characters. And they have made this thing into a play, it is no longer just my story. It's the story they are telling based on the, what I've written. Hmm. It's a construction. So that was that was a great blessing.
0: Uh, we're speaking with Lorene Carey, whose voice you just heard, author and playwright of Lady Sitting, which is now at the Arden Theater. We're also speaking with Trezana Beverly, who stars in that play as Nana um, and I want to read you, Trezana, an email we got from a listener. This is from Jane. Okay. Jane says, this is something that hits home for me with my mother and I'm sure a lot of other people. Was it hard to write and act it out? End of life can be very traumatizing. Was this hard for you, this role?
5: Well, actually, my mother passed away about three years ago. Sorry. And, um, but, you know, it, it, it it's very interesting that um, I have not had... Any moments in creating this character where I have felt emotionally overwhelmed? Not at all. Um, and the beauty of it all is actually that I, I, growing up as a as a as a young person, as a child, I. I've always been around a lot of older people. Really, <laughs> so you know, capturing their movements, their voice, their temperaments has has been very, very easy and so much fun. I cannot <laughs> I tell you. You seem to be enjoying yourself. Oh, up there. I love the role. It's one of one of the roles that I have truly enjoyed uh, creating. You're from Baltimore. Is that I'm originally right? from Baltimore, and you Maryland.
0: Up, you grew up a lot, around a lot of old people. You uh, said. Older people, yeah. yeah.
5: I mean, I guess I gravitated to them huh. because I don't know. They just seem to. I think it was the gravitas, mm. you know, oh. the, and their humor. Yeah. because it's a generation that, and and Lorreen has put that in in the play. Because it's you know you're watching a woman decline, but uh, I I said to uh, I said to uh, Zia or uh, Zahara, our director, uh, the, I said people are, are going to have so much fun watching someone die. I mean it's incredible <laughs> because it has so much humor in it. Yeah, it's
0: very funny at times. And,
1: and Lorene, I got to ask you this question. My grandmother was one of my favorite people, so I kind of grew up with mm-hmm. a lot of older people. Uh, As well, I want to talk about sort of creating a character, I mean, who actually was in your real life and sort of when you meet like your grandparents, they are a different person than they were maybe at a younger part of their life. And you get to hear the stories. So talk about portraying a full life, a hundred and one years on a stage where you have to curate and tell these different stories and draw this thread of who a person was throughout that journey.
4: Oh Well, the fact, the fact is one has to give up on that ambition because there's too much, you know, I, I just, a lot of what I did was just cut, 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 cut. There are all these wonderful stories. And I, I so wish that I, could have put in more of them but but what you have to do is is figure out what are the stories that are first of all what's what's most actable what works best on the stage between and among people um what's necessary um and and then you know what's your thesis any 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 piece fiction nonfiction, play film anything has some sort of a thesis. So, and quick
1: follow and I, up on that. What what mm-hmm. would, you, would you say is one of your favorite stories telling about your
4: Nana portrayed in the play? Oh 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 oh. Um, I I love I love a current one that I was there for as opposed to a, a, an old an old one. I love Nana voting for Obama. I love the fact that she always called him our young man, (laughs) and that for her, that connected her to her father, who had been in the Reconstruction, who had been invited to the Taft White House for the reception, who had worked for George Lewis, the last black senator from North Carolina, before Jim Crow shut it down. So the idea that this is a woman who connects Reconstruction To the to the first black president, I I wanted I wanted us to understand that that's part of what old age does. It you have a whole long life, and if we listen to those people, we get access to other times.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, That's such an effective effective scene. This is it's a scene where Nana is uh, filling out a mail in ballot. (laughs) Uh, for to vote for Barack Obama before we were all doing bail-in ballots it's actually interesting Mm -hmm. to see it from the perspective of now Um, and and I think and I think I have this line right at one point Nana says that this sort of this act of voting makes her feel like she's still in the world but there's another point in the play where she kind of cries out why am I still here and that is a line that just shot through me Uh, Mm -hmm. Trezana tell Mm -hmm. me about delivering that line and, and what you take from that line
5: well, one of one of the central character plots of um, Nana is that she wants to die on her own terms, uh. and that line, you know, "Why am I still here?" You know, how is she trying to die? She wants. She really wants to die in her sleep. If, if I follow the script correctly, <laughs> and uh, because that's how her father died. Mm-hmm and she, but death keeps interrupting her <laughs> she keeps having these visions people keep coming in bothering her and uh i think the fact that she she is able to vote um maybe answers one of the questions yes. she is able to do that um and uh, be with her her daughter her granddaughter Lorraine to do this 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 is a seminal moment in her life so she does ask the question more than once in the play why mm-hmm. am i still mm-hmm. here and then of course we have those moments where you see why yeah the why's she, are revealed why she is still here you know mm-hmm. as long as you have as long as you have purpose
0: yeah it actually reminded me Lorreen, of a quote from the great temple basketball coach john cheney uh that i always mm-hmm. remembered um he's he's told sports illustrated at one point uh Why am I the last one left talking about the rest of his family? Is it because the worst is waiting for me, or because I'm privileged? Am I left here to be special or to be tortured? I don't understand. What do you think your Nana made of the fact that she lived so much longer in that Mm -hmm. last year and a half than the doctors expected? Like, was she trying to? Do you
4: think she was trying to figure out why? I think for a good part of it. Except in moments where where her um, where her body and mind failed, um, but when she rallied, she felt that it was victory. Hmm. She felt like she had been victorious. Yeah.
1: Wow, uh, Trezana, you have a career that spans four decades
5: just above (laughs) yeah with a (laughs) bit of a
1: stop in some places and and now that you are a woman of a certain age you told our producers that no one makes roles like this for older black women we are usually the sidekick what has it been being the star of a show that is centered around a black woman of a certain age
5: well I'm glad you asked that question because um you know I'm I'm primarily known as a character actress. Mm -hmm. And um, it has really only been over, the, I would say, the past 20 years that character actors have been having the advantage of playing leads. And (laughs) in this play, uh, Nana, um, you know, she is a character, you know, and I play her as a character. Um, To have that lead, to have that central role is just, uh, just wonderful it's wonderful to um you know have that dance on stage and um you know, I think of um Helen Maron. Uh, Judith Dench, Dame uh, um, Judith Dench uh-huh, the British uh-huh. actresses who are, they're all women you know, 60 and above uh-huh. and they are playing those roles they are being cast in those roles and oh I, I certainly hope that um, other producers will, you know, look at actresses, you know in my age range and uh, want to give us quality roles, roles of substance and give us leads because there's, there's you know as you know as you grow older you you know you become you develop more substance and you have lived longer you've seen more you've navigated through more in life and you we have so much more to bring to these roles i just finished playing king lear all right as I a man, it. as a man, I played him in an uh, in, uh, Arizona uh, repertory theater in Arizona. Mm-hmm.
1: And I have a, a, a sort of similar question for you, Lorraine. And, and by the way, shout out to Jennifer, who sent an e- email, who said that we enjoyed the show very much, especially having done elder care recently myself. So this story sort of resonates with so many people, Lorraine, Is there a lesson that you learned from your Nana and watching her um, navigate this part of her journey?
4: Oh, wow. wow! I should have an answer ready for that, shouldn't I? Wow. Damn, this is a real feeling. <laughs> <laughs> a feeling.
0: Could I broaden it a little bit?
5: I'll broaden it a little bit.
0: Uh, lessons for society, too, right? Because yeah. there's something oh, to be said oh, wow. about how America deals with uh, our elders yeah, with, with, and, and with medical care in general. I mean, there are definitely some lessons, some societal lessons in
4: here, right? Oh, oh, Avi, that makes it, you make it worse. Wow. (laughs) I tried to help. I'm sorry. Here, so for myself, um, it does feel like this is the time to start aiming, looking at, you know, I'm closer to the end of my life than the beginning of my life. Uh, Lear is a perfect, a perfect example. You, you get closer to the end of your life what do you What do you do? Mm. What What do you learn from older people? What do you do to make yourself ready, mm. so that you're not as appalled by death as a forty year old? I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and our whole society, I think there's the there's the spiritual emotional part, which means accepting that we're mortal, and mm. sometimes we think that individualism and capitalism and money and power are going to somehow protect us from death and we're fools. (laughs) Um, But also we can do government policies that make it easier for people without resources to take care of their elderly people without beggaring themselves. Mm to help have better i mean the the tribune just put out a piece today on how rentals have gone up so much and it's hitting the black and brown communities hardest if, if you don't have a place to live how how are you going to get your old person into your place with yeah. you um all anyway we there are lots of ways we could look at what europe does we can look a lot at what a lot of africa is doing to to make it easier yeah. Um, we can look a lot at what Asia does to make it easier. Yeah. There are policies. We don't have to make it up. Um, but we still think we're the Marlboro Man.
0: Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's an interesting place to end the conversation. I wish we had more time. Um, but we'll end of the Marlborough Man uh, allusion there from <laughs> Lorene Carey, author and playwright of Lady Sitting. Thank you for being with us, Lorene. Thank and, you very and, much.
5: And thank you for our great supporting cast. Absolutely. This stage.
0: And that is Trezana Beverly, thank who you. stars as Nana in the production, lady Sitting, showing now at the Arden through March 3rd. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Yes. And coming up, we'll take you on a culinary trip with Philly Mag's Best 50 Restaurants. Stick with us. Welcome back to Studio Two. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman, Errant Cherry. You
0: know, mm-hmm. I feel passionately about this, that Philadelphia is one of the best food cities in the world.
1: Yes, I agree with you. You can go out and get your appetizer from Vietnam, your entree from Tibet, and your dessert from France. We are a great food city, okay? And last week, nine nominees from Philly made it to the James Beard semifinals. Now, there's a longer list, hot off the press from Philadelphia Magazine this week. Tell the people what it is. Go ahead.
0: It's mommy. called the 50 Best mm-hmm. Restaurants List. Come on, you know this. It's every year. Philly Mag does this every year. Everyone <laughs> looks forward to it. Um, and with us to talk about it is Kaylani Palmazano, who is the host of Check Please, Philly on WHYY TV Yay. 12. Um, also, Philadelphia Magazine's food editor. Kaylani, welcome to Studio 2.
6: Thank you so much, and thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about this list. I'm so honored and privileged to have worked on it this year.
0: It's a legendary list. Um, If you want to shout out a place in your neighborhood, if you want to participate, give us a call. The number is 888-477-9499. The email is studio2 at WHYY.org.
1: And before we start going over the list, which we will in just a minute, um, you had a little disclaimer in the article talking about best, what you define as best. Give us the quick rundown on how you sort of looked at this?
6: Absolutely. The spirit of this year's 50 best list is that everyone's definition of the best is different and they're all valid. And I think through my work with Check Please and all of the guests that we have come on the show over the years, I've really learned that the best could mean a lot of different things. So when we looked at these restaurants, there's so many different kinds of cuisines and cultures and all of these things that are represented that it's hard to compare. So mm. when we looked at the best, we were like, okay, what is the best relative to these restaurants? And to to me and to my team, it was restaurants and chefs who have a command of their cuisine, who aren't afraid to play within the boundaries or the rules of of their craft. And that's how they're moving Philadelphia's dining scene forward.
0: Mm. All right, let's get to the list. Okay. Um, number one, and I think they're a repeat number one from last year?
6: Well, we didn't update in the middle of the year. Okay. Yes. Okay. So it's...
0: So number one is Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Correct. Mm-hmm. Which is uh, Center City. Yes. Why does this one rise above the rest? what, What makes this place so special?
6: I think it's the way that Chad Williams, he, again, takes the rules and just bends them. And he is really able to create a tasting menu, in my opinion, that is just perfectly balanced. And it's such a great progression that tells you a full story. And it's like, it's fine dining, but it's also very approachable and chill and fun. And the team takes a really, takes really good care of you. And I think what put it really over the top for me was I I went here last year when I was pregnant. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and one of the servers actually knew exactly what temperature my steak needed to be cooked. He was like, Oh, yeah, like, don't quote me on this like 195 I don't know I don't know the but he knew it and I didn't I was like I'm I'm in good hands the
0: attention to To detail detail. yeah love that
1: and Kalea which we've had we had the chef from Kalea on the show beard award-winning yes chef there what number two on the list
6: I think I've always been really impressed by the fact that she is just unrelenting with her style of cuisine. Like when she first opened up, people were like, oh, this is too spicy. And she was like, no, this is the food. I'm not changing the temperature (laughs) level. And on top of that, there was always this conversation of like when different cultures... The perception that oh this should be like takeout prices or cheaper and she was like no it's just unrelenting unabashedly herself and it has really paid off and I think it's a huge testament to her work that here's this cuisine that a few years ago people did see as like takeout or as pad thai and now it's on the front page it's on the cover Mm
0: -hmm. yeah then we've got I'm just going down the list here royal izakaya queen village I love it uh her place supper club number four number five Cantina La Martina. This place has gotten a lot of buzz mm-hmm. for a lot of different reasons. Tell yes. folks about Cantina La Martina from a culinary perspective, but also some of the other reasons why people are really gravitating toward the story of this restaurant.
6: Dionisio Jimenez is the chef, and he's been part of the Philadelphia food landscape for over 20 years. He worked through all these different kitchens, including Vetri, and like his food is it's it's so exciting because it's he, it's mexican cuisine but it's also an expression of all of the experiences that he's had over time like there's something on the menu it's like Huet l'acoche ravioli mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so again it's playing within the boundaries and pushing the limits of of the cuisine and of the food and and like there are so many things that are really unexpected like for brunch blue corn pancakes and like it's it's different than a lot of Mexican restaurants though we have a lot of really good Mexican restaurants we do, we do. when you go there I don't think that there's many places that are doing like puzzle soup like the traditional green pozole soup or they're doing like over the summer he had this um, specific squash uh, dish but it wasn't like a spaghetti squash it was similar to a spaghetti squash but he sat down and he told me the great lengths that he went to to get this like one specific squash that he was familiar with in in Mexico and he found it at like one grocery store and he made a, a dish with it so it's I I really appreciate that and he built barbacoa pits in the backyard so on weekends you can have barbacoa Mm. i love that by the way that's
1: just the top five there are 45 others but you also have sidebars yes uh you list best market best daytime bites neighborhood classics best on the go meals I mean, there was so much. Can you give us some of the highlights? And also, promising pop-ups. Can you give us some of the highlights from those sidebars? Oh,
6: Well, this was to honor the fact that over the years, res- restaurants had to deal with really unprecedented circumstances, and they came up with a lot of really clever solutions to keep their businesses going, to continue to engage the community. And so we wanted to give space to those initiatives. But I think my favorite sidebar of all is the promising pop-ups. And these are the roving chefs that are going Uh, to different restaurants to different venues and creating these really unique menus that are almost sometimes served one night ever Mm. and it's like their test kitchen they're testing out new concepts and those those are really fun and some of those on the list are um, rice and sambal who it's a Deanna from Hardina she stepped away to focus on this project there's old Liz who you might remember from Couch Cafe that's Liz Grothy and she's oh yeah she's she's quirky (laughs) (laughs) she has such like a she says it's she calls it seriously unserious approach to Mm. to food it's very playful she just had a pop-up at High Street over the weekend that was it was the theme was Western Sizzlin', which is an mm. Oklahoma chain restaurant. So that kind of gives you an idea. And, of course, there's people like Jacob Trin. And if you remember Poi Dog, um, Kiki oh, yeah. Aranita. Yeah. She's gone, you know, she had to evolve her business through the pandemic into yeah, a sauce. Because brick and
0: mortar is no longer. Right, yeah.
6: right. No longer. Um, and then Chef Ruby on the scene.
1: Wow. Yeah.
0: Okay, so uh, as we wind down here. I got to be a little selfish and ask if there's a place on this Mm -hmm. 50 that I can go have a great meal. Not pay too much.
6: OK. I think a great meal where you don't pay too much and you're going to have a classy fun time. OK. A middle Child Clubhouse.
5: Yes. And I know
6: it sounds strange to call it classy, but like the food has become so refined over the years. I mean, you This can... is like a sandwich shop, essentially,
0: right? Like it's original place, the, the, not the clubhouse, the one over near the Jefferson Hospital
6: complex. It's just like a sandwich board. Absolutely. Yeah. It's evolved over the years. Yeah. They've really... They were always so... Playful, and I don't want to say that they've matured because they still have, you know, a picture of Princess Diana in a <laughs> an, <laughs> an Eagles, Eagles jacket. jacket. Yeah. Um, but
1: the, yeah, they're they're clearly having fun with what they do. And Valentine's Day is coming up. Advice on where to go um, for for. For first dates or early folks, and then you know the more seasoned couples. I feel like Middle Child Clubhouse for sure for that first middle child, middle date.
6: Middle yeah. because it's date. Low, We're having fun. Yeah, it's low key enough, but the food is still really impressive. Okay. There you go. And middle I think cl- it shows a lot about your personality if you're into into it. All right, All right. Middle
0: Child Clubhouse, and that I one is that that that. I wrote in the uh, so River area. Check that out.
6: Oh, yeah. that's in Fishtown. Oh, yeah, Fish yeah, yeah, Fishtown. Yeah. Fish
0: yeah. Cool. All right, uh, so check that one out. Check Ooh. out the whole list. The 50 best restaurants Lots in of cool the region.
1: on the list. And okay. a lot of places I have not been, Avi, so I can... We have work to we do. We work to do. That's yeah. Kaylani
0: Palmazano, Philadelphia Magazine's food editor and host of WHYY's Check, Please, Philly. Thanks so much for being with us today.
1: Thanks for
6: having me. By
0: the way, mm-hmm. Thursday, 7.30, WHYY TV 12. Check out Check, Please, Philly. And you can find segments and special content on YouTube.
1: Yay, love that. And that, Avi and friends... That's it for our show today. Download us wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray-Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks and Diana Martinez engineered today's program. From Studio 2 at WHYY in Philly, I'm Cherry Gregg. I'm Avi Wolfman. Aaron, we'll see you tomorrow.